This is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff Tabiri. There's a history that has been left out of textbooks and regular people's minds. And if you're not a historian like me, you might not know about just how turbulent the years after the Civil War were. In a word, Reconstruction. It's a period in American history that extended from 1861 until the turn of the 20th century. Was it a success or a failure? Probably both. Depends on who you ask. We're spending this hour speaking with an author about a little-known chapter from this period. It's a chapter that includes an attempted coup of the Louisiana state legislature. It includes a chapter about President Ulysses S. Grant abandoning efforts to instill some rights of black Americans. And it's a book titled Sheridan's Secret Mission. How the South Won the War After the Civil War. And the author of that book, Robert Swicklick, is here with us on Due South. Robert, welcome to Due South. Hi. Glad you're here. All right, we'll get to Union General Phil Sheridan, namesake of the title, in a moment. But first, I want you to set the scene and the general moment for us. We're in the post-Civil War period, mid-1870s, and despite the Confederacy having lost the war, They are, in some ways, hardly defeated in some of their efforts. Big picture to get us started. What is happening in various places across the South at this time? Well, the entire period after the war was quite turbulent. I'm sure most people uh, recall that right right when the Civil War was ended, when, when Grant and Lee came to terms at Appomattox and gradually the war wound down from there, it was uh, days later, days after the the treaty at Appomattox, that Lincoln was assassinated. And right when the reconciliation between the North and the South was supposed to begin, um, a new president took office, and he was someone who Lincoln chose as kind of a unity figure, Andrew Johnson. He had been a South, you know, he he was a Southerner. He was mm-hmm. from Tennessee. He had very different ideas from Lincoln about how the settlement should happen with um, former slaves. The 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 idea of giving them full the full gamut of rights, political rights, et cetera, citizenship, is, was far from being decided. And Andrew Johnson was very sympathetic to the South. Even, you know, Lincoln wanted a, a, a gentle settlement of the war, but not he didn't want to have basically a Confederate-minded person in, you know, running that show. So it was very turbulent right from the get-go. Anyway, um, in 1874, when my uh, story begins, th- this was 10 years later. And there had been a lot of push and pull between the North and the South. Uh, And it was established that uh, former slaves would, you know, have voting rights and would have citizenship. But there was a lot of struggle over that. And by this time, it was pretty much open warfare. There were uh, armed militias riding around in various Southern states trying to intimidate black people to keep them from voting, uh, attempt to, you know, overthrow. In in some states in the South uh, where there were large populations of slaves, um, now the, the tables had been turned and black people were actually a majority of the voters, a small majority in Louisiana, which is the area that I concentrate on, and a bigger majority in 
Mississippi and South Carolina. So there was a great interest on the part of the former uh, sort of overlords of the mm-hmm. region, the planter class, to set things back the way they were. Sure. So during this period, um, as you mentioned, uh, President Johnson is installed after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He's our 17th president. And then uh, former Union General Ulysses S. Grant is elected in 1868 and reelected in 1872. And again, bigger picture here, but please cite a couple of examples. There are points during his presidency when President Grant turns to federal troops to try to quell some of what you're alluding to here, what, what you're talking about, efforts of intimidation, efforts of um, trying to trying to pull the Confederacy back up and uh, keep some of the rights from black people, from residents, uh, as it pertains to uh, from whether it's electoral or, or other things. But I guess if you would underscore for us what Grant has to do a couple of times here in his presidency prior to um, Sheridan's secret mission and what we'll talk about here in a moment. There was um, violence right from the start. And even before Grant was elected, there was uh, a great deal. When, when Johnson was in office, there was um, a lot of bad feeling from the beginning. And they had to resort to uh, armed force pretty much constantly to, to uh, protect uh, not only uh, black people, but also union loyalists. Um, By the time Grant came into office, there was already, basically there were were laws on the books to protect former slaves in their voting rights and civil rights. And from time to time, Grant would have to dispatch troops to various places. And that was considered to be uh, constitutional. But that became a question later on. Um, Robert Swicklick is here with us on Due South. He's written a book titled Sheridan's Secret Mission, How the South Won the War After the Civil War. And we're honing in on this um, this, this mid-1870s period. President Grant is in office. Uh, and New Orleans, let's turn our attention there. Something of a melting pot, may, maybe the the most melty of melting pots in the United States from a multicultural standpoint. Uh, and in the 1870s, it's also the capital of Louisiana. Tell us about this place. Set the scene for us, if you would, about the Crescent City during this period. Well, New Orleans, uh, in fact, was a very uh, cosmopolitan place, possibly the most uh, cosmopolitan city in the South. It was the, I believe it was the largest city in the South. And from early on, uh, after the war, or even during the war, uh, New Orleans was captured by Union forces early in the war. It was, I think it it might have even been in 1862. I can't recall exactly. And right from the the start, Lincoln um, had wanted to begin reconstructing the Union right then by... uh, trying to establish a functioning uh, government in uh, New Orleans and in Louisiana so that he could show the world, hey, these people are ready to be readmitted into the Union. Um, And he wanted to, and and 
at that point in time, there was a rather large um, population of black people who were free before the Civil War. They were mixed race and many of them very highly educated. And they began to clamor for a seat at the table in this new reconstructed government that Lincoln had already begun to speak about. Um, and so they were already uh, lobbying for, for various, uh, for voting rights, et cetera, um, even before the war was over. But, and so it was a very politically active place and that that never changed and and by the time sheridan comes back sheridan was actually uh stationed as the uh military governor of louisiana years later when violence uh, violence sort of became uh it, it was uh inescapable by, by by sort of 1866 after Lincoln had been assassinated and Johnson was in office, there was a lot of turmoil in, in the South. And after they established what they call military reconstruction, basically sent troops back in and uh, Sheridan was made the military governor of Louisiana and Texas. So he had a lot of experience there. And he was also cooperating with these uh uh, Creoles of color, they call them, hmm. the 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 black people who were free before the war, and he, they they were demanding right like the right to ride on streetcars with uh, everybody else, and Sheridan said, okay, that sounds you know fair, and and he tried to remove the the most culpable. Uh, former Confederates from local offices and tried to straighten things out uh, as they, as the Congress in Washington attempted to establish new, you know, constitutional uh, regulations for the whole country so that black people could vote, et cetera. And then he implemented those policies. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was in, in the mid 1860s or the late 1860s before his return at the beginning of my book. And I'm going to jump in just for a moment, remind listeners that uh, we're chatting with Robert Swicklick on Due South about his new book, and we're going to continue talking about this Reconstruction-era story on the other side. This is Due South on WUNC.
This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. There have been at least six attempts to overthrow state governments in American history, and these are just the documented cases. Perhaps you're familiar with the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, when a duly elected municipal government was ejected by white supremacists who killed as many as 300 local residents. This hour, we're talking about uh, a different chapter from the Reconstruction era. It took place in Louisiana. Here with us on Due South is Robert Swicklick, former Wall Street Journal editor and the author of Sheridan's Secret Mission, How the South Won the War After the Civil War. Robert, I want, us, uh, I want you to tee up for us, if you would, uh, who General Phil Sheridan was. Tell us a little bit about him. Sure. Well, he, Phil Sheridan was, um, a, he, he hooked up with Ulysses Grant during the Civil War when Grant had been plucked from the so-called Western Theater of the War because all of Lincoln's generals in the Eastern Theater were sort of combat shy. They didn't like to press the issue. And Lincoln wanted someone who, who would take his army and start going after the Confederates. And he chose Ulysses Grant, who had been making a name for himself, as kind of a heart-charging general in the Western Theater. Um, and when Grant was in, in command of all the forces, and there, it, around, in 1864, uh, the, was, which was Lincoln was running for re-election, right. there, things had gone, uh, taken a turn for the worse. They all felt ever since Gettysburg that they were going to win this war. But in 1864, some Confederate raiders had been closing in on Washington, making everybody very nervous that they would try to sack the city. And all the while, the country was waiting for them to make their move on Richmond and take out the Confederate capital. And here it was, Grant's looking at his own, you know, the, the, the Union capital is being threatened. And he reached out for Phil Sheridan, who was also... He had known from the Western Theater a young, sparky, spunky, foul mouthed <laughs> very aggressive young commander. Uh, he was a cavalry commander at the time. He was so uh, aggressive that he had almost gotten thrown out of the service because when he was at West Point, he got into this huge fight uh, as a cadet with an older cadet. And he... After the fight was over, everybody thought the next day he attacked the guy and started, you know, he, he came out of out of nowhere and started beating the crap out of him. <laughs> and so they kicked him out of West Point. And they didn't, they didn't, uh, they 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 made him stay out for a year and then let him come back and graduate. Because I so I guess everybody recognized wow. this guy's a fighter. Yeah. And he's so Grant, uh, when he was still in the Western Theater, encountered him and thought he was a real uh, go-getter on the field of battle. And when this crisis happened in 1864, he brought him east to help run down some of these, uh, Jubal Early in particular, a Confederate general who was, who was just uh, bothering Washington and driving them crazy. And Sheridan got in the field and basically took him out of the picture. 
and and helped it helped the Union forces rally and finish out the war. And he was even one of the people who had helped Grant corner uh, mm. Lee at Appom- at uh, Appomattox. So they were very tight, and I, I think it's it's safe to say that they were uh, you know probably that period cemented their friend. Their, they were friends forever after that. They're, right, they're very they're, tight. They're, right, uh, there's a partnership, if you will. Uh, do you have yeah. a you have a um, a passage from the book queued up here that you wanted to read about General Sheridan? Sure. Um, so right in, at the beginning of the of the narrative is when uh, Sheridan, as a th- this is in the in the year eighteen seventy four, it was the night before New Year's Eve, and he's arriving back in New Orleans, where he had been stationed as military commander many years earlier. And he was coming into town with his, uh, you know, his sort of close aides and everything, but they were all sort of dressed in civilian clothes. And he had his his um, brother was with him and there were some people's wives with them and daughters. And they were all telling everybody that they were on vacation. And the, uh, the New Orleans uh, newspaper at the time said, yeah, sure, it's just... Purely a pleasure trip, only this and nothing more. And they they were openly skeptical because they knew this guy. And I'll, I'll just pick up in the uh, in the prologue. Like many Southerners, the Picayune's editors had raw memories of Sheridan, whose troops had torched homes, barns, and crops in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley during the war, in a campaign known as the Burning to transform the region into a barren waste so residents could no longer provision Confederate forces. If a merciless deed had to be done, a contemporary writer noted, everyone expects Sheridan to do it. Hmm. Louisianians also had firsthand experience of Sheridan's ways and means. Installed as military governor of occupied Louisiana after the war, Sheridan scandalized many residents with his attitude toward former slaves or freedmen, backing their demands to ride on streetcars with white passengers and allowing them to serve on juries, weighing the fate of their former masters. When the idea of black voting rights moved from the radical fringe to the center of federal reconstruction policy in the Republican-controlled Congress, Sheridan was the point man in Louisiana, registering new black voters, who became a majority of the state's electorate and disqualifying ex-Confederates from the voting rolls. The new majority black electorate chose a slim majority of black delegates to write a new state constitution, producing one of the most progressive charters of a a remarkably progressive period during Reconstruction, establishing, at least on paper, universal public education, integrated schools, and the rights of black men to vote and hold office. Congressional Republicans also engineered the adoption of the 14th and 15th Amendments, establishing birthright black citizenship and prohibiting the the denial of voting rights on account of race to address work left undone after the abolition of slavery with the 13th Amendment. 
That's Robert Swicklick reading from his book titled Sheridan's Secret Mission, How the South Won the War After the Civil War. And we're uh, focusing in on General Phil Sheridan, this small uh, person, I guess we could think physically, but he had this big persona. He had this big uh, place within the Union's efforts, as as you note, Robert. So 1864, uh, Grant and um, General Sheridan form this alliance, if you will. And then 10 years later, 1874, uh, he is back uh, in the, the crosshairs, I guess is maybe one way to put it, in Louisiana. And uh, he is trying to uh, portray to the local news editors that he is on vacation with his family, having a nice time in the bayou. But that's far from what he's really attempting to to do down in Louisiana. He's trying to survey for Grant the role of the white liners at this time. Tell us a little bit about who the white liners were, what they were up to, and why Sheridan was trying to do some reconnaissance about them, the, the white liners? Well, um, what was happening here, uh, when, when Grant and Sheridan um, learned, became pretty much, uh, uh, you know, grew closer back in 1864, that what was happening uh, Lincoln was afraid that he was going to lose the election because of this set these setbacks in Washington area, and losing the election meant losing. You know, basically, they they felt like they would lose all the things that they had accomplished so far: emancipation of the slaves, for instance, and they'd be right, right back where they started from. And it's I think that because Sheridan helped Grant and Lincoln out of that mess. It, this, this mess that they were in in 1874 was quite similar. As, as Grant looked on from Washington and, and surveyed the South in Reconstruction, there were these groups of, uh, of former Confederates and younger people who wanted to, who honored the Confederate cause. They were forming militias armed militias uh, to go about and basically through whatever means were necessary to deny voting rights and political power to uh, these formerly enslaved mm -hmm. African-Americans in the South. And this was in, in Louisiana was a, a very acute theater of this uh, with with a group called the White League. And in Mississippi, there was a similar uh, group called the White... They, the, I don't know if it was formally, but they, they were known as the White Liners. Very similar operation, though. Very well-armed, very well-trained and drilled. And what, what Grant and uh, a lot of... Uh, Southern Republicans, and when you say Southern Republicans, there's many black people in that group. They were uh, naturally the Republican Party, being the party of Lincoln, was the party that um, black Southerners felt most kinship with. And it, it began to look to Grant and to Southern Republicans that all the all the rights that had been granted them 
uh, were in jeopardy now. And just as Sheridan was called on to help save the civil, you know, the victory in the Civil War, he Grant called on him in 1874 when pretty much everything was on the line. The, the, many states uh, in the South had already gone back to conservative rule. States with smaller black populations um, where it wasn't as much trouble to elbow them out of power had already fallen. And now the um, conservatives in the South were looking at the states with the larger black populations mm -hmm. where uh, Republicans were in power thanks to that support from the black voters, right. where they were starting to to move on them. And in Louisiana, there were thousands of white leaguers in the field by, now, by, now, by the time that Sheridan was sent down. And he, he basically, I think Grant was groping for an answer because he knew that it was very unpopular to just go right. ahead and send an army down there. Couple couple points of context here. One, as I think a lot of our listeners know, Republicans during this time period were more progressive-minded people, and as you're noting here, there were uh, alliances between uh, some Southern Republicans and some uh, so Yankees, so-called carpetbaggers, um, some freed people who now uh, have been uh, given the, the the constitutional right to vote, and it was Democrats. Uh, at this time, who are more right-leaning and anti-black. Any pushback to that kind of oversimplified categorization there? None. Okay, just making sure. And of course, that all shifted. And, you know, we didn't want to get into it too much now, but that a lot of that shifted uh, during the civil rights movement. And, you know, when, when in particular, when the Democrats... Uh, pushed for civil rights legislation, I, I, I guess people... That's often uh, Republicans now will try to use this old history as a way to tar uh, Democrats with actually, uh, you know, right. uh, to distort the civil rights picture now. So white liners and white leaguers, uh, there's a passage I want to read from your book. I think it plays into this kind of uh, thread of the conversation here. This is in reference to former Virginia Governor Henry A. Wise. He was, as you note, a bit of an eccentric character. And Governor Wise had actually advocated for the Confederate states to remain in the Union and fight their fight from within the institution of government. This is in the lead up to the Civil War. And many thought Governor Wise from Virginia was kind of nuts for this idea. But here's the passage from your book, which I think kind of plays into what we're talking about. It says, but after the war, when former Confederate states were back in the Union and Ku Klux Klan operatives unleashed a campaign of terror against freedmen and their allies, some Republicans believed that Wise's strategy had been adopted. Frederick Dudless, the celebrated abolitionist author and orator who had escaped from slavery as a young man, warned that the South, having failed to gain its ends by a war outside of the Union, has adopted the advice given at the beginning of that war by Henry A. Wise to carry on the war within the Union. This type of war, covert, insidious, secret, striking in the darkness of night while assuming spotless robes of loyalty in the day, is far more difficult to deal with than an open foe, close quote. What else were they doing within the institutions of government? And how does this kind of build toward this attempted coup? 
Well, I think what what you're reading from was written by Frederick Douglass, um, I think years before this episode began, and people were recalling it now because it began to seem more true than ever. The Klan, of course, by the years 1874, the Klan had kind of been brushed aside uh, by uh, Grant had, had and the Republicans in Washington had instituted some aggressive enforcement policies. And so they sent troops down and they arrested a bunch of uh, Klan operatives and they put them on trial and they put them in jail. And they kind of broke the back of the Klan in 1871, 72. Um, and now we're in 1874, 75, and the White League is sort of a successor to the Klan. And they don't uh, ride by night with hoods on. They're out in the open. And it, what, what they kind of uh, rely on now is they more of a sense of white solidarity they want to they want to try and lure make elections all about the racial divide and in and on the side of course they use intimidation tactics but on the surface they say look white people got to stick together you know this is bad this is these uh carpetbaggers meaning the the Northerners who came to the South to uh, run for office and and with the help of votes from uh, former slaves, uh, they wanted to to cast them all as villains and uh, say that this this whole business of black voting was no good for anybody. So, it was a you know it was slightly different campaign. It wasn't all in in uh, secret, but essentially the same thing. They were going to do whatever they had to do to stop uh, people who they didn't want to vote from getting to the polls. So there's this rub, this uh, this contrast in 1874 between these um, these white leaguers uh, in Louisiana. And also Grant trying to maintain order in the South, trying to uh, continue to uh, provide the ability to vote and hold office uh, to black citizens of America. And of course, during this time, I think many of our listeners will know, there were as many members uh, in elected office, there are as many black members in local and state and uh, members of Congress than there have been uh, at any other point in American history. We're chatting with Robert Swicklick here on Due South about his book titled Sheridan's Secret Mission, How the South Won the War After the Civil War. And on the other side, we'll talk about the period during 1874 when a group of these uh, white leaguers attempted to overthrow uh, some of the members who had been installed in the Louisiana state government. Stay with us. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.
Welcome back. This is Due South on WNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. I'm here with Robert Swicklick, and we're talking about his new book, Sheridan's Secret Mission, How the South Won the War After the Civil War. And this is a period during Reconstruction, and I want to focus in on early 1875. During the 1874 uh, general election that year, uh, Democrats, conservative uh, party at that time, take back the U.S. House of Representatives, the Congress. This is the first time that they have done so since the end of the Civil War. Uh, and what follows in the weeks and months ahead, and folks don't have to think back that long uh, about, you know, uh, a different kind of attempted coup that, that happened in our country more recently. But in late 1874, there is this mobilization that is taking place with um, these white leaguers and thousands of them descend upon New Orleans. And General Phil Sheridan also is in New Orleans uh, to try to take the temperature, if you will. And I think it's worth noting before I turn it back over to you, Robert, that the president, President Grant, has instilled uh, in uh, General Sheridan the ability to call in federal troops if needed. So I want you to pick up the story there. January of 1875, what happens when the Louisiana state legislature comes in uh, and just talk to us about the turmoil? Well, in um, as you say, there was a lot of, there was a lot of. Uh, the the conservative Democrats won the House in the fall elections of 1874, and the there was a lot of um, turmoil in Louisiana that year. The Republicans won barely. Well, it was a is a close run election. They 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 barely held the House of Representatives and were man, managed to do so only because. They had uh, thrown out a lot of votes in certain areas where they said there was too much violence and that they were illegitimate votes. Um, you know, there was violence pretty much every election, uh, but it was, it, you know, the, it, there was a lot of, um, it, the, the Democrats failed to accept that. And they were, uh, there, were a, there was a lot of talk that they were not going to let the uh, there there was there was going to be violence when the legislature convened, so one of the reasons Sheridan was sent to New Orleans to take the temperature in New Louisiana and in the whole basically the whole South by Grant was to sort of be in town if there was trouble, and there was indeed trouble. He arrived there um, the uh, night before New Year's. Eve, and a few days later, January fourth was when the legislature was set to reconvene. And before they could even swear anyone in, the the floor of the uh, House of Representatives was kind of a melee with uh, various. Uh, there were people in there. Uh, pretending to be sergeants at arms uh, who were actually believed to be white league operators, operatives, and they were trying to hold the floor for the Democrats and to keep the Republicans from objecting and, the, and being able to uh, hold elections for their leaders. So it was kind of a mess. And while this was going on, the governor 
called in and requested that troops be sent over. U.S. troops were in town the whole time mm-hmm. since uh, the attempted coup in September. All right. So melee and mess. Let's back up. Uh, and perhaps I should have gone there uh, as, as well. Um, tell us, remind us um, the, the framework of that attempted coup in September. Well, the Republicans had controlled the state government since uh, they were they were they they won the governor's election in 1872, and they controlled both houses of the state legislature, and the, the Democrats also contested the results of the 1872 election, and at this point in 1874. They called all the citizens of New Orleans in, in the newspaper to meet in a protest on September 14th in front of the statue of Henry Clay downtown. And while a conservative l- lawyer was making a speech to the crowd, uh, white league troops descended on, you know, uh, kind of militia troops descended on the town and tried to, uh, and basically clashed with the local police force. And while that was happening, the uh, the governor uh, ran for cover, you know, uh, and basically left the, the, the government, kind of vacated the seats of government and was taken over by the white leaguers. And there, and the, losers of the previous election were, you know, installed into power. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's fast forward back to 1875. Uh, Robert Swicklick here with us on Due South. So there's, I believe you used the words melee, uh, mayhem, and there's there's this point of chaos uh, on the floor of the Louisiana state legislature. Is it physical? Is it violent? Are they dragging people away? Uh, Give us a little bit more color. Go ahead. Let me add one thing to the previous episode. That Grant didn't allow that coup to last. I mean, he sent uh, troops down to to New Orleans, and the white leaguers and everyone said didn't give them any trouble, and said, "Oh yeah, okay, uh, we you know we don't want to fight with with the federal forces here," and the Republican governor was put back in office, and then the election happened and. It was essentially, it was the House of Representatives uh, on election day, the the results after the returning board uh, counted all the votes was like that it was tied. But the previous House of Representatives was controlled by the Republicans and they were going to choose who who the tie races went to. And so on the floor, before that could happen, before the Republicans could put their people into office, and control the House of Representatives. The Democrats in the in the chambers uh, ran and took over the speaker's rostrum and called a vote for speaker and elected the Democrat as speaker, and basically just did this all on voice votes. So whoever shouted the loudest, mm. and then the Republicans said, "Wait a minute, you can't do that." And then all these people who were um, appointed as sergeants at arms or basically suspected white leaguers ran down and it was kind of a show of force. The, the 
the hall was um, filled with all these people, and they basically said, you know, we're, we we control, you know, the House of Representatives. So there wasn't actual violence. There were people who were supposedly had their hands on their sidearms. It could have happened. And before that happened, the the uh, troops, uh, the blue coats, the uh, United States troops were were uh, allowed into the building to kind of control the situation. But and then they they ushered out the people who had occupied seats who they that didn't win them in the election and uh, restored order. Restored order. For how long? To what extent? Did they ever really restore order? Basically, this this attempted coup lasted for about an hour. And then the troops came in and yanked them out. The 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 Democrats had tried to take control of the, of the chamber by force, essentially, and stick their own people in where some of the returning board uh, people had put in Republicans, they had tried to forcefully say, just by shouting, like, who who wins that seat? Oh, that's, you know, this guy. And they, they kind of took over. And the troops escorted those people out who were not elected, according to the returning board. And that's what got uh, all the publicity. The, the sight of these Union troops on the floor of the House of Representatives in a Southern legislature was kind of not the not the best publicity for the Reconstruction effort. Another interesting takeaway I had from from some of your text is that Grant was not was reluctant at times to send federal troops in, uh, and it's something he then moved away from later on in um, during his time in office. Well, this episode. Um, in Louisiana, we were just talking about when the troops came in to remove the Democrats who had illegitimately taken taken office in the House of Representatives. And the story of, you know, this episode was publicized all over the country. And you have people here Sheridan, who was a hero of the North in the Civil War. Obviously, Grant is a hero, uh, and such a hero that he became president. But overnight, they're engulfed in a scandal. U.S. troops in there tossing out uh, representatives from a Southern legislature, and you had people uh, calling these meetings in various cities I think they were called indignation meetings to make speeches about how these people were tyrants and putting the boot on the neck of Southerners and how this was awful and Grant was becoming a military dictator. This was uh, obviously going, any politician, even a novice politician like Grant was going to be cautious in the use of troops uh, after this episode. He was rhetorically committed no less after this. And whenever he uh, talked to people, he would reaffirm that commitment. But when this same scenario happened again in Mississippi, later in uh, 1875, um, he hesitated. 
And it was in the election in Mississippi where he was asked by mm-hmm. the governor of Mississippi at that time for help. And at first he said, you know, he was basically said, listen, you know, maybe you can try see what you can do with your own militia there. And, you know, obviously that's going to be a, a, a difficult thing because most of the people in the militia at the time are African-Americans because it was becoming very polarized. Um, and so he he was reluctant to send African-American militia into the field against white liners, as they were called in Mississippi, to because he was afraid that that would touch off a race war. Hmm. So Grant very reluctantly sent troops when probably it was too late. And Mississippi was was essentially during that election um, was kind of strong-armed by white-line terrorists um, who managed to intimidate enough voters that the Democrats won the election, even though Republicans held a large majority thanks to a majority black population. Robert Swicklick, author of Sheridan's Secret Mission, How the South Won the War After the Civil War, is our guest here on Due South. I uh, obviously have to at least ask you about uh, a parallel between 1874, 1875, and 2024, potentially 2025. We're 150 years removed or so, um, but we had this attempted coup, this insurrection uh following the election of, of Joe Biden to the presidency four years ago. Uh, I wonder if there are parallels that you see. The, the parallels with the, the similarities, the echoes from Reconstruction are kind of hard to deny, uh, I, I think, because basically it, Reconstruction, there was, there was violence surrounding elections uh, pretty much throughout the period. For instance, we just talked about when the white leaguers sort of emerged on the floor of the House of Representatives in Louisiana to kind of stare down Republicans who felt like they they were taking rightful control after an election and to 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 force them to watch as Democrats installed themselves in office. And you'd have to say that the scene on Capitol Hill in January 21 was at least a cousin of that. Violence was in the picture in a situation where violence is never welcome. I mean, the whole idea of having, you know, elections and, you know, courts and, you know, procedures and everything, this was all, you know, you're not, you're not using force to take power normally. Um, but what's striking about it is how the perpetrators of the violence were able to sort of win over uh, Republican officials to to now come to their defense and say, well, they, there really wasn't anything going on there. That was all fine. And I think you see parallels of that too uh, back in, eight, in the 1874, 1875, where uh, Democratic newspapers routinely would, when, when there were reports of white league violence to intimidate Republican voters, 
they would say, oh, that's nonsense. That's just made up. That didn't happen. Um, and that was very common. They would even deny the very existence of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, so denialism uh, is emerging now. And, we, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you'll see things to, in today's paper about of somebody, deny, you know, defending that uh, Trump won the election and that, the, you know, the January 6th uh, insurgents were actually just tourists and there was really nothing going on. And there's people saying that, the, you know, that was all, the, the FBI was was in the crowd and they were uh, inciting people to violence. I mean, there's, there's it's, it's really uh, kind of strange how, how much they, uh, the denialism happened in both periods. Uh, let me just sign off by saying this. Robert Swicklick is author of Sheridan's Secret Mission, How the South Won the War After the Civil War. Uh, and he has been your guest here on Do South. Robert, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, as always, for listening to Do South. This segment was produced by Cole Del Charco. Our other producers are Rachel McCarthy and Stacia Brown. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. Our co-host, Leonida Inge. I'm Jeff Tabiri. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.